Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So we're dedicating our time together to angels. So um, angels and um, angelic type beings um, have been recognized by humans for a very long period of time. You need to pull your head back, I think, a little bit. It's a little bit too close. Not you, Sparrow. Me? Yeah, yeah. Not too far back, but just now talk a little bit. Is that better? It's, it I like that. That sounds good to me. Let's try it from here, okay, Sam? And you sort of cut out a little bit, but I don't know what to do about that. It's like we're in the uh, ghetto, in the podcast ghetto and Skype. You know, they had in Get Smart, like uh, every so often, like the chief would say to Maxwell Smart, you know, this is a really serious matter, uh, Agent 76. We're going to have to use the cone of silence. And then this like plastic (laughs) dome would descend over them and they'd say like, uh, I should have discussed this during our silence conversation. And then, they, then, like, the chief would say something, and Maxwell Smart would say, what was that? And then, like, the chief would say it again. He's like, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Like, they couldn't hear each other inside the cone of silence. It went on and on, the same shtick, every show, over and over again. And that's like us. We're, like, trapped in the cone of silence. That um, prop in Get Smart had a big effect on me, actually. (laughs) Yeah, it was my first real introduction to silence, to to the idea Mm -hmm. of silence. Yeah, it was kind of a mystical concept, really. Yeah. Since Andrew is the one member of our trio that is an actual trained theologian, trained at the Harvard Divinity School, no less, he will introduce now for us the whole concept and meaning of the angel. As it's transmitted within the band of our Western experience principally, but. Well, um, just uh, meaning with broad brushstrokes for a moment, angels um, have been recognized by humans for a very long period of time, really since the beginning of recorded civilization. The archetype communication between mortals and the angels exists in almost every religion and culture. in Judaism, in Christianity, in uh, Islam, in um, pagan, and uh, they are quite broad theologically. They they appear as uh, harbingers of uh, of death, or to announce joyful and, and profound events. They bring catastrophic destruction, and they also protect little children while they while they sleep. Guardian angels. Uh, as we know from um, the Jewish prophetic books, angels have appeared in wheels of fire. They're beautiful human-like beings or monsters. There's an interesting line of continuity between angels and demons. Demons as fallen angels. Dig it. Yeah, all all demons were originally... Charm bracelets and Hallmark cards and um, <laughs> prayer cards and all part of the divine tree. I've always thought of sort of the demonic realm as maybe like the roots of the of the tree, mm. and the angelic are these branches in the sky. Mm. 
I think that the medieval theologians famously said that the pleasures of heaven were the were the angels looking down enjoying the torments of the demons in hell. That was like that's what they did for fun, kind of like the way people watch reality TV shows. Right. Well, um, you know, one thing I would say is I believe the word is derived uh, from courier, from mountain courier or messenger is um, yes. is where the word angel comes from is uh, as an intermediary, which I very much have been feeling that we've had a lot of interesting different sound effects and also distortions in, in the transmission. And I feel that's an angelic parabola hmm. sectoring with our time together. So I just wanted to say that. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm also, the uh, I did pick up that there's an old English word that's the equivalent of angel that I like very much. Erengast. Erengast. Huh. Yeah. Uh, which is and, some kind of ghost. Ghost well, means like spirit or ghost. Right? Well, the errand is uh, what, you know, our word errand, and then ghost, an errand ghost. That's correct. Oh. Mm. A ghost that does uh, little uh, jobs for God, does errands for God, I guess that's what it means. The, the angel is not always benevolent. The angel can be a trickster and be rather hmm. destructive. In my own upbringing, coming from a Roman Catholic background, I recall the figure of the angel emblazoned on prayer cards and in religious holiday kitsch. And I remember them being sort of soft, paternal, I suppose. But my wife, who comes from, in part, Transylvania, uh, had an upbringing where the angels were... Um, were mixed morally, that there was a moral ambiguity associated with the, uh, with the angel. What does that mean? Some were dangerous? Some were dangerous, and some perpetuated um, evil in all of its forms and darkness. Really? Uh, despair, yeah. That there, was the, that there was a real psychological complexity to the influence of an angel, that it wasn't just benevolent. She was, she was raised Catholic? She was raised within the Eastern Orthodox Church. I think we have some technological difficulties. Yeah. yeah. There was like this of silence that fell amongst us. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, hearkening back to our last, no, two conversations ago was silence. Last week was chariots. Silence. Chariots, yes, I but the angelic realm has something to do with the transmission of messages, has something to do with communication, with forms of communication, um, of which, as we know, there are an infinite number. And uh, I also wanted to say with the Old English, I think ghost is also the word for spirit. So mm -hmm. I think it would be more like Aaron spirit. Aaron spirit? Aaron spirit, yeah. So I mean, one of the things I wanted to say was that I think what initially attracted me was my idea to discuss angels. And because I was reading about them in the synagogue, I guess, last week. And I was kind of fascinated by the pagan qualities of an angel, that an angel is a half 
person, half bird. And how is it that this is the one composite being that has lasted into the modern era? Like there's no more centaurs, no more sphinxes, no more mermaids. You know, no one really believes in these creatures anymore. And yet, I think, I wish I'd looked this up, but I remember reading that 94% of Americans believe in angels. And there's some kind of um, routine by, uh, oh, who was that? George Carlin, where he says to people, you know, 94% of you believe in angels. Like, what's the matter with you? What else do you believe in? Gremlins? And, uh, you know, it's like everybody believes in angels. Nobody believes in demons. And uh, and yet angels are just this weird creature with wings uh, that is clearly left over from this pagan world where there were these half animal, half person That's beings, gods, goddesses, semi demigods, and and they've been somehow incorporated, folded into the Abrahamic religions. Well, the one thing I would say is, I mean, I think people, more people believe in angels than believe in uh, than believe in God. Yeah, I think that might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what I was that's saying. So, I was saying you know, angels have become like uh, corn of the um, spiritual diadem of the of the heavenly diadem. In that, like corn, you know, this monocrop has really taken <laughs> over. Do you know what I mean? Like it's the one crop, you know, corn. And uh, angels, you know, swept up the sphinxes and the dyad, diadins and the fairies <laughs> and goblins and all all of those creatures got swept up into the skirts of the angels. And then my theory is. Which might have something to do with this concept of the Holy Spirit uh, and the concept of spirit, the way it's mm, defined in Western religion. Spirit is connected to inspire, meaning to breathe, has a relationship to air, to breath, to wind. And since uh, birds fly in the air, uh, the spirit, the Holy Spirit is a dove. Dove is almost an angel. I don't know why, but I think it has some connection to that, that angels survived the uh, the pagan triage. <laughs> birds birds are going to come up when we talk about Rilke, when we talk about the... the oh, yeah. Species. Yeah, we can do a little rap about that. Yeah. They, that word, angel, definitely in terms of the popular religiosity has infiltrated the uh, the lexicon the language angels are just everywhere right guardian angels angel as a term of endearment angel you know, all, all of the uh, popular iconography of angels yeah my aunt Cicely uh, when she needed a yeah, when she needed a place to park she would she would call out angel with a meter face help me find <laughs> a parking place hmm. <laughs> Did it work? Did it work? Yeah, it actually it did. did. Yeah. Well, she was very. Um, she herself was very divine. Oh. And, yeah, yeah, and uh, often she would her wishes would be granted easily. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One time, my wife went through a period of like, I'm going to visualize a parking space, and then it'll appear. 
And we were trying to find a parking space on Fifth Avenue and 12th Street in Manhattan. It's like an impossible place to find a parking space. She visualized the space right across from where we were going, right on 12th Street on the corner of Fifth. There was the place. We parked there. We went to eat at uh, whatever you call that, like bread place on 8th Street. Uh, Pain. Pain complet. Pain quotidien. Yeah, 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 yeah. We got back, and there was a parking ticket. Uh, oh, ho, ho. that was not the message you wanted to get. Maybe because we didn't call on that angel, only on our own uh, ignorant uh, 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 visualization powers. Yeah, you needed the, the facilitator. Yeah, so I was thinking about the human race has, like, gradually lost its capacity for imagination, you know, beginning in the pre-Christian, before these so-called higher religions, there were all sorts, like an amazing uh, variety of gods, goddesses, uh, water beings, air beings. Very local and also uh, inscribed into the land. Yes. Similar to Australian Aboriginal peoples. That, that was one of the ideas I had, that, which I guess is what you're saying, that uh, pagan entities tend to be local, tend to be connected to a place, like like they're the genius of a stream, is that phrase, you know? Or like the, the Greek gods lived it on top of a particular mountain. There's Mount Olympus. Up there, that's where the Greek gods live. Whereas right. the angels, angels are like uh, completely uh, dislocated, you know, they're completely itinerant. They can be anywhere. They have no connection whatsoever to loca- locality. Anyway, I, that's my... I'd always assumed, you know, within the Western tradition, my understanding, and also coming out of John Milton, is that uh, angels <laughs> uh, exist, um, if that's the right word, angels uh, abide dimensionally in a state of intuition. Hmm. Wow. Now, intuition has a number of meanings, I guess, right? Intuition is some anticipation that something's about to occur. Hmm. Is that correct? That's one way to look at it. I mean, that's not how I, what's the word, perceive intuition. I mean, it's, I don't, it's hard to describe how I see it. Maybe some kind of way of thinking without rational thought that gives you a different sense of life, like a kind of direct sense of life without using your mind exactly, almost like using your heart. That's how I see intuition. But yes, intuition typically, or what's the word, literarily tends to mean a, a foreboding yeah, but your your understanding of the word is much closer to its application in the philosophical tradition, mm. and it's one of immediate cognition. It's probably closer to what Olson would call proprioception. Mm. Mm. What's that? What's proprioception? Good question. Proprioception has to do with these chambers in the ear. <laughs> that help you to remain um, in coordinated to the world. They orient you in terms of up, down, left, right, and help you to balance. 
It's a mm. form of swaying, you know, being, you know, centered. Mm. Be a, I guess, a um, colloquial way of saying it. But much more than that. But I think it very much is this is this word intuition. But I guess there's yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a question about angels. I mean, I found myself questioning. Uh, how much do angels have uh, free will? How much do they have individuality? How much do they have personalities? Because when you say, oh, they li- they exist on this level of intuition, maybe philosophically they're in this very high state, but then how does that explain that like thousands of them or maybe millions of them rebelled against God and, and chose to follow Satan? So. Yeah. Well, you want to hear what the Catholic Encyclopedia communicates on that? Absolutely. The Catholic Encyclopedia clearly states that the devil and the other demons were created by God in the state of innocence. They were initially good morally, but they had become evil by their own act. Hmm. According to the Encyclopedia, it is of great importance that man did not sin by his own will but by the suggestion of the devil. And that in the next world, the wicked shall suffer perpetual punishment with the devil. So I guess angels were, were created good, but then out of an act of will, things darkened or thickened with complexity. The one thing I heard is that is that evil originated from these angels who departed yes. from the way. Yeah, that that's what they're saying, right? That the that the yeah. devil, who was an angel, is right. is responsible for Adam and Eve sinning. Therefore, all sin comes from the original sin is really with the devil. It's not with humans, kind of. Yeah, that that's one thing that that I didn't know before. Yeah, and, I never thought about it. Yeah, the other is that the uh, the devil. The devil, if I may say, and again, um, reflecting back on former podcast on, um, the, on the swerve or the Klineman, is that the devil was the swerve. Mm, he was right. the deviant element that allowed creation to manifest. Right. He's ego, really. You know, the angels, you know, the good angels have essentially no ego. The devil is ego. He says, I don't want to be, what's the word? I'd rather reign in heaven, in heaven than serve. serve no, him. I'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Yeah. I don't want to be a slave. I, I want to be myself. I want to express myself. I want to do my own thing. Yeah. I have an ego. That's the origin of the world. <laughs> but there's also something, if, if I may say, artistic about that orientation Mm. yeah you know it's the guy who leaves it's the person who as we discussed steps out of the light of the campfire Mm. and milton you know famously is trapped in this problem that he's writing this book paradise lost all about how evil the devil is but like you're saying the devil is kind of the first writer so when you're writing a book, you end up kind of siding with the the most artistic character. God comes off as kind of a pathetic, mumbling, old fart. 
And the devil is this amazingly self-creating being who's, you know, he has the best lines. <laughs> because yeah. he has an ego. Yeah. Blake pointed that out. Right. The transvaluation of values. Isn't that what it means? Isn't that the phrase? I remember learning that in some classroom. <laughs> that something like, you know, the devil is really God. God is really the devil. That's what... Uh, that's what Blake realized, and maybe he comes out of Swedenborg. I don't know that. Like, in other words, that desire, that that life force that says, "Yes, I rebel. I fight against all arbitrary authority. I escape." That is God, and that that voice that tells you, "Obey me. Do everything I say. Praise me. Love me. I am a big ego trip." That's really the devil. So God, what we call God is really the devil. What we call the devil is really God. It's also, That's my understanding what Blake is saying. Yeah, it's also interesting in, in light of the Sufi martyr mm. uh, from, I think, the ninth century, thereabouts, who, um, procla- you know, who said, I am God. Mm. Was that even Arabic? And he was and he was killed for for saying that. I forget how some awful way. <laughs> Do you, I would yeah. I am God. He said, and that indeed is is a real insight. Which is what all the gurus say. Yeah. I am God. The uh, I am that. That's a, like the 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 I feeling the sense that I exist. That is God. The Atman, the self. I mean, it a little bit becomes a definition of what do you mean by I <laughs> when you say I am God. But the other thing that the angels point toward, which is for me marginally disturbing, is that there's no clearly articulated sense of what heaven is all about. The clearest thing I've heard, which you espoused, uh, Sparrow, is that they're like looking down at uh, looking into hell and sort of, you know, amusing themselves that way. But otherwise, the whole idea of being in heaven, like somebody who is virtuous goes to heaven. What, you know, what's the, what do you, what's happening in heaven? What is? I know that some Orthodox Jew told me that in heaven, you continue studying forever. That like heaven basically is a school. Just, I don't know if this is a unique uh, idea, or the, or this is the Orthodox Jewish concept, but this might just be for men. I think maybe like the women are cooking or something, you know. At least that's how it works in most Orthodox Jewish uh, cultures. But maybe maybe when you get to heaven, finally the women are allowed to study too. Maybe actually they can even study with the men because the sexual, uh, you know, temptation is not such a big problem in heaven. It's, it's interesting how the angels travel to Earth for um, for pleasure and for um, maybe a realization. I know uh, the Book of Enoch. Now, the Book of Enoch is where exactly? Do you know? I don't Sparrow know. in the Tanakh. Oh, wait, I might have the it in front of, of me. Enoch. I have the Bible with me. Is that? It's Jewish, you think? Yeah, 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 Enoch. I, I don't. Is it? Maybe it's not. A, I don't think it's accepted um, canonically into the Christian biblical. It's it's in the uh, in the Tanakh in the the, the, the Jewish Bible. Hmm. Uh, 
But there are angels called Grigori, which is translated the Watchers, who hmm. introduce agriculture to humanity. Huh. They're, they're tall, they're tall, radiant beings. Um, hmm. They're also instrumental in the making of metal. But some, <laughs> some of them, uh, some of these Grigori, some of these angels, overstep the boundaries of friendship with mankind. And mate with women, and in particular in the Book of Enoch, the daughters of Eve. And so the daughters of Eve give birth to these monsters um, mm. um, that are um, spawned from mm. these unholy unions. And this induces the wrath of God, who sends the uh, the flood to destroy the world. Mm. Mm. And that's all in the Book of Enoch. It's sort of a a second lapsarian moment where these um divine or quasi-divine beings are tempted by a female, the daughters of Eve. And yeah. um, then there's this monstrous birth that needs to be uh, rectified by a um, divine intercession through um, through a natural disaster. Yeah, that's so much more lurid than the version that we got, you know, with the flood, you know. It's just kind of like generalized, it's a kind of pastiche. I guess that's from Genesis. That's from Genesis. It's kind of like a deeper penetration into the origins of the flood. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I think it's somewhere in Genesis that these creatures come down and have sex with women. I can't find it right now. But, oh, yeah, I mean, there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty, and men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Maybe that's it. The giants in the earth. Is that Genesis 6, 2? 6, 4. In my notes, um, I have a, a, a notation of Genesis 6, 2 as being the verse in which um, some exegetes believe angels had sex with human beings. Oh, yeah, here it is, yeah. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. So, yeah, I think the sons of God refers to uh, the angels. When I studied with the Jehovah's Witnesses, they explained to me, that Jesus is the son of God, but he's actually the first son of God. God continues to have sons after that. Sons, but no daughters. Millions of sons who are the angels. The angels are sons of God. But according to the Jehovah's Witnesses... Who does God fornicate with? I never thought about that. I guess uh, that's not how it works. God just has sons. You know, through some whatever you maybe, know maybe his ejaculate is just <laughs> like immediately you know each like the sperms themselves are his uh are his angels maybe we ourselves if i may posit at this moment are carrying millions of angels in our satchels in our sacks yeah i mean that's what the jehovah's witnesses said there are millions of angels and I think that comes out of the Bible, some probably the Old Testament somewhere. 
So, yeah, I mean, I when I learned that, I was really shocked. I had no I would have guessed that there were 18 angels. If somebody asked, you know, if I had to take a multiple choice test, right. I would not have thought that there were millions of angels. And I, I really love that idea of this massive number of angels that could be used by people. I think they're like a kind of a power, like like uh, like electricity. A you know, field the, of potentiality, you know, that we're interpenetrating with, but uh, an access, you know, may access, but uh, rarely do, perhaps, or you know, we try. You know, you know, Sam. You know what's interesting is uh, my um, favorite modern theologian, Paul Tillich. One of one of my favorites. I, I've read a fair amount of Tillich. Uh, he, he interpreted the, uh, you know, you know what he did? He, he tried to make Christianity psychologically relevant or relevant to a modern audience. Mm. So he took the, he would take these theological concepts and he would um, search for their anthropological and um, psychological meanings. For example, he's famous for saying that sin is best understood in the modern world as a form of estrangement. A huh. form of Estrangement. And he wrote on uh, angels. He put forward um, an anthropological slash psychological interpretation of angels that interpreted them in lines of what you were saying as a field of influence. And here's a quotation from the second volume of his systematic theology. And I quote, the truth of the doctrine of angelic and demonic powers is that there are supra individual structures of goodness and supra-individual structures of evil. Angels and demons are mythological names for constructive and destructive powers of being, which are ambiguously interwoven and which fight with each other in the same person, in the same group, and in the same historical situation. They are not beings but powers of being, dependent on the whole structure of existence and involved in the ambiguous life. What does that mean? What do you, what does he mean that like I, like I wasn't sure about that fighting stuff. That that seems <laughs> hypothetical and uh, magical thinking, as they say. Well, I mean, you know, there there are various um, force force fields, right? Levels of energy that that struggle within us and within creation, mm. and we feel them. I mean, I I feel these these force fields when I walk into a place and I just mm. have I just have a sense of the goodness the light or the dark or something I don't know language mm-hmm. sort of um, falls apart yeah yeah electromagnetic field. that's um I mean do you do I well I mean I was thinking yeah I mean maybe I'll just those, talk those about are, what happened yeah, to me which is like I went to the synagogue I go to the synagogue quite a bit when I'm in Brooklyn and a little bit when I'm here upstate. So the synagogue last week, they read a little bit of the Torah every week. And this week was this story about angels. It's about these three angels that appear to Abraham. This is uh, Genesis 18. Yeah, sure. And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre. And he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lift up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. 
And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye, your hearts. After that ye shall pass on, for therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. So they're they're never described as angels, but I guess the, but the rabbi who was talking said that they're angels. I think they're traditionally considered angels. And they're the ones that announced to Sarah, who is 100 years old. This is the next part. I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing in, you know, yeah. King James Bible, that they uh, that Sarah is going to have a child. She's 100 years yeah. old. And, and yeah. they say, we're going to come back here a year from now and you're going to have a child. And then she laughs. And uh, and and then uh, God says to her, how come you're laughing? And the Lord said unto her, Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laugh not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. So God and Sarah have this little argument about whether Sarah laughed, Sarah gives birth to this child named Isaac, which is supposedly related to the word for laughing. So these these apparently are angels, but they look just like people. And the guy, the rabbi who was talking had formerly been a chef. He was like a young hipster looking rabbi who was a chef until he became a rabbi. And he was talking about the importance of hospitality, of, of how, the, the, he, how Abraham sees these tired looking people walking he thinks they're people he gives them his best food he actually interestingly gives them non-kosher food he gives them milk and also lamb but the kosher laws haven't been invented yet so it's okay so uh, you know the and it's about kind of and i think one of the subtexts which he didn't say but i was thinking is that in a sense hospitality turns people into angels the the act of the, the one of thing I can see someone Sarah, they were what? three tramps they were drifters <laughs> they were yeah. the, uh, part of our ninth knights errand well <laughs> yeah. listen can i add something that th- you're absolutely right sparrow that this um this passage is interpreted as a uh, a metaphor for the uh, for hospitality after um gives them refuge in his tent, end up going to Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Where they are turned away, where hospitality did not occur, and hence the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right, uh, yeah. Those two narratives, you know, are meant to be read together. Those two stories back yeah, yeah. to back in Genesis, right? Although I'm not sure they're the same three angels that appear in Sodom oh, and Gomorrah. Maybe not. That's what I was not, the way I was okay. reading it, I was not sure that they were the same. But I guess you have to read the, what's the word, commentary. So anyway, I just got interested in this idea. I'm sort of answering your question about uh, who is an angel. I just started to get the question, oh, about like how you feel force fields. 
uh, when you walk through life. And I started to think, well, really, maybe some of the people you see on the subway or in your daily life are angels. You know, that seems to be what happens in the Old Testament. You know, Jacob wrestles with a man. They call him a man. <laughs> they don't call him an angel. So, and it turns out that apparently he was an angel. So it turns out, you know, it seems that there's some uncertainty in the Bible. You meet certain people, they look like people, but they're actually angels. And I started, so I was on the subway today, getting ready to take the bus back home. And I was looking around and there was like one guy on the subway that I thought this guy could be an angel. A guy, African-American guy with a radiant face, kind of a young guy with a holding a backpack in his lap with an enormous water bottle, talking to his friend next to him, just had this look of absolute ease, contentment, and like spreading radiance. Would you posit that he was in, a, in an intuitive state? Well, he seemed to be. Who can tell? One thing I would, I would say is that, you know, I have a lot of dogs and cats and things like that, you know, dealing with... Oh, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes dogs and cats they can rise to a state of what I of what I would call a recognition of consciousness, mm. and they'll look at you in a certain way in which you really feel like you're on a human level with them. Say, mm -hmm. and I would say that it is also possible for human beings to rise to a state of what intuition will arise to oh. and it is you know i think that the mahasiddhas and the masters and realized beings hmm. who are fully human you yeah. know that is the angelic state to become fully human and to realize all your bodies yeah. you know i think of the response body of uh, mahayana buddhism the uh, the bodhisattva that is that is uh, has uh, angelic qualities and is able to uh, appear as the body one most needs it to appear as to heal one, hmm. as almost medicine. That the um, the uh, response body is a shapeshifter, an angelic shapeshifter. Yeah, and I think really maybe all angels have certain amount of shapeshifting capabilities. They can all appear and disappear. I think. They don't exactly follow the laws of physics, I believe. And in terms of this shape-shifting, what do you make? Do you have any theories, any thoughts about the fact that um, angels, sort of like Tiresias, the blind seer of ancient Greek tragedy and mm. epic fiction, angels are duly gendered, that they, they, are, they have um, either both genders or no gender. There's, there's something of, uh, as Robert Kelly once said, a third gender, a third category. Is that is that universally accepted that angels have no gender? No, um, it's not. I mean, M Milton makes them hermaphroditic oh. initially, um, and in the Gospel according to Mark, which is my favorite gospel, it's the um, the oldest of the um, the synoptic gospels. In chapter twelve, verse twenty-five. There is um, a line that reads, men marry, women are given in marriage, the angels do neither. So the implication from the perspective of some theological exegetes is that uh, angels do not marry, they do not reproduce, 
they are without gender. I don't really entirely see it in the language, but that that's one um, textual interpretation, one the, tradition. The, the, don't them doesn't Milton say that the angels have sex? I kind of remember that. Yeah, they do. He says they do. Yes, yes, they do. Yeah. Milton was a big fan of sexual uh, expression, actually. He was a lusty Puritan. <laughs> yeah, it was before. Three wives. And remember that um, in his telling, Adam and Eve fornicate before the fall in the garden. Right. And it's not the fall is not a consequence of concupiscence. Really. Right. It's not sexuality. It's the problem. It's the feeling that you're naked. Like, yeah. you know, in Genesis, yeah. that's the seems to be kind of the awareness of sin of Adam and Eve is that they hide themselves from God because they're naked. That that piercing self-consciousness, right, that that feeling of the estrangement from self, from from one another. Yeah. I mean, that af that androgynous nature of angels, it is interesting, right? Maybe it is kind of a pagan holdover that, uh, you know, the, because here you have these very patriarchal religions and the angels are almost God. They're like the servants, you know, they're like the whatever bureaucracy underneath God. And yet you would think they'd all be male, like they are with the Jehovah's Witnesses. But um, but maybe in some traditions they're they're hermaphroditic because the you know because the patriarchy hadn't seeped all that way in, you know they're because they they're beings from another time, you know before everything got masculinized. <laughs> yeah, I, re I remember the angels in in the iconography in the working class Catholic households that I spent time in as a child were um they tended to be male. And they had hmm. pretty effeminate bodies. There was yeah. an androgynous quality. And I, I remember being acutely aware of that at a pretty early age. Yeah. Okay, well, this is this is an interesting take on gender, I guess. I remember being puzzled by it. You know, I just puzzled. found this. Yeah. Uh, yesterday I went to, I was, I was found this uh, Greek newspaper in the garbage. That was uh, the first four pages were in. It's like a Greek Orthodox newspaper, oh, and nice. I was just looking through it because I like looking at newspapers where I can't understand what the words mean. And there's all these photographs of these uh, ecclesiastical Greek Orthodox priests, and I was thinking, you know, really the purpose of religion is so that men can wear dresses. You know, that's basically the reason that they have religion. And uh, and that's true of angels, too. If you you know, these angels, working class angels you saw as a kid, they're men in dresses, you know, that with wings. <laughs> you know, interestingly, are you familiar with the, uh, the travel writer? And I guess she has written novels to Jan Morris. She's still living. No, I don't She's know. Welsh. Jan Morris um, went through an early sex change surgery. She grew up, She wrote about it in this uh, memoir, transgender memoir called Conundrum, that was published probably at some point in the 70s or 80s. I think she may have gone, she was born genotypically male and transitioned maybe at some point in the 1960s. 
And uh, she writes about how her uh, spiritual awakening, her transgender awakening, occurred in, an, in, in church and uh, was enabled uh, largely by these effeminate angel men in dresses that this was the path that led her to um, realizing huh. that she had she had to um, change her, her body as an adult. Huh. It wasn't sort of a product of the sexual revolution or um, some yeah. virgin literature on transgender identity. It was uh, medieval Christianity. And there really is, I mean, I had these friends, they've kind of drifted away from the Catholic Church. They used to call themselves Madonna Catholics, Madonna in the sense of the pop star. And they were very big on this idea that, that the homosexuality of the Roman Empire was sort of uh, maintained within the Catholic Church for millennia, you know, that essentially... You know, the Catholic Church is, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this in a podcast, you know, is like essentially a kind of vehicle to maintain a, a sort of subculture of homosexuality that that's, you know, prohibited in a larger culture. So it's and, sort of incubated within the, pre, within the priesthood? Yeah, maintained, you know, in semi-secrecy. Yeah. Like a tradition that goes back from, you know, before our current civilization that is homophobic. <laughs> Who was the friend? You, you said something about Madonna, but I missed it. These are like two friends of mine, a, a couple, and they okay. were Catholics. They went to Catholic church. The, the wife had converted from, with, went to this Jesuit church on the Upper West Side to convert and they were sort of intellectual bohemian modern Catholics, you know, here in Phoenicia, actually. And they were kind of like reinventing Catholicism, a kind of kind of re-paganizing Catholicism to some extent. <laughs> yeah. The one thing I would say is, you know, what I would suggest is that we seek a path toward the reintroduction of the Erengast. Uh-huh. Just to diversify, just to chop up the mono crop of angelic <laughs> dominance. Yeah. And one path to that is looking into the Duino elegies. Oh yeah, um, let's hear that. Well, let's hear one read aloud. Well, all right. So Rilke in 1911 stayed at a castle 1911 yeah the winter of 1911 through 1912 he stayed in a castle near Trieste called Schloss Duino and uh, so she split the uh, Princess Marie von Thurn von Taxis Honenhol <laughs> and left Rilke in this nice place right and then it goes on, one day he received a troublesome business letter. And I'm, and I'm uh, you know, working with the Spender Leishman translation, uh, which Stephen is the, the Norton, you know, it's the Norton copy. It's got the black cover. And um, so this is, I'm just reading from the introduction, which I think is well written, actually. It's uh, useful. There's very little uh, contextual information here just the bare minimum, and I think it's pretty comprehensive. 
at any rate, so he got a bad letter that required an immediate and careful answer to settle his thoughts. Now, this is the moment that echoes, Sparrow, back to your point that um, oftentimes, you know, when one receives uh, heavy news, you go out to take a walk. <laughs> so here's Rilke. To settle his thoughts, he went out into the roaring wind and mm-hmm. paced to and fro along the along the bastions. This place yeah. has bastions. The sea raging 200 feet below. Wow. Suddenly he stopped, for it seemed that from the midst of the storm, a voice had called to him. Mm. Or, who, if I cried, would hear me among the angelic orders? Now, I, I kind of want to just... Uh, so, the Duino elegies, this is the first of ten Duino elegies. It took him like ten years to write. Oh. with a constant refrain to the angelic and his concept of the angel is is inherently interesting and i'd like to read to you what he writes about it in a letter yeah. the angel of the elegies has nothing to do with the angel of the christian heaven hmm. rather with the angelic figures of islam The angel of the elegies is the creature in whom that transformation of the visible into the invisible we are performing already appears complete. Mm -hmm. The angel of the elegies is the being who vosages for the recognition of a higher degree of reality in the invisible. Therefore, terrible, which is a word that's going to come up to us, because we, its lovers and transformers, still depend on the visible. One way to talk about the angel is is that it's a hypostatization of the idea of a perfect consciousness. Hmm. So the angelic is the state of of, uh, perfect consciousness in one way of of speaking of this. It's very psychological. Yeah, I I so want to um, read more commentary generally, and uh, all this stuff is really useful, um, I believe, for really coming to grips with what occurred to Rilke on that night at Hmm. Castle, and I have uh, more specific uh, information about that moment. I think it's in this. Uh, so profound. Rilke is really like a soul magician. It's almost like he's the only real poet in a way. You read Rilke, and like everybody else, kind of disappears. Like it's uh, hard to think. Robert Frost is a poet while you're reading Rilke. <laughs> Robert Frost seems like a bus driver. <laughs> so this is more a specific description of what happened at the moment of this meeting of this voice that came to him and mm-hmm. out of which unrolled these ten elegies. Hmm. 
and he's writing 1913. It could have been little more than a year ago when in the, ca- in the castle garden, which sloped down fairly steeply toward the sea, something strange encountered him. Walking up and down with a book, as was his custom, he had happened to incline into the more or less shoulder-high fork of a shrub-like tree, and in this position immediately felt himself so agreeably supported and so amply reposed that he remained as he was, without reading, completely received into nature, in an almost unconscious contemplation. Little by little, his attention awoke to a feeling he had never known. It was as though almost imperceptible vibrations were passing into him from the interior of the tree. It seemed to him that he had never been filled with more gentle motions. His body was being somehow treated like a soul and put in a state to receive a degree of influence which, given the normal apparatuses of one's physical conditions, (laughs) could not have been felt at all. Now, this is Wilco writing in the third person about this moment. Wow. So this is like Beckett, you know, in Dunleary. Perfect conscience. Nevertheless, concerned as he always was to account to himself for precisely the most delicate impressions, he insistently asked himself what was happening to him then, and almost at once found an expression that satisfied him, saying to himself that he had got to the other side of nature. Mm. Wow, yeah, that is a great definition of angels as being on the other side of nature. Well, that's the state into which he entered, but it also has to do with these vibrations and with mm. his, uh, and, and with the state of intuition. He mm. mm. of the messenger of the angelic, and then, you know, out of that comes, Wer bin ich schrie, hörte mich denn aus der Engel Ordnugen, who uh, if I cried, would hear me, you know, in the amongst the in the angelic ordnugan. That um, that state is reminiscent of the um, the, the the constructive uh, power of being that that Paul Tillich writes about. Hmm. That 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 field of energy that that you encounter that moves you beyond the um, purely human to that that supra individual state. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Of perfect consciousness. Now, when did Rilke, not that this really is relevant entirely, but when did Rilke get psychoanalyzed by Freud? <laughs> well, he, he wasn't. Uh, this was his friend, Lou Salome, was trying to hook him up with Freud, and he said, no, 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 I, I don't want to uh, banish my bad angels. No, I don't want to, uh, well, I forget. What did he say? I don't want to I don't banish, want to banish my, bad. my bad angels, or I fear my good angels will flee. Hmm. Hey, that that that's ex- that that brings us um to where we left off last podcast. That's, that's how exactly angels, where we were. Yeah, quite that's so. How, that's how angels came up as an idea for this one. Isn't that oh yeah, I could read. I don't know if you have enough time, but I did bring the song Three Angels" by Bob Dylan. You know that song, right? From 
New Morning. Yeah, sure. New Morning. Yeah, I love that's. I like that album. It's mm. sort of a pre-Christian Christian album in some ways, right? Yeah, I think it's. I think of it as a Jewish album, but it certainly seems to be about God. Okay, here it is. Three Angels, and he just recites it. You know, while this this like uh, swelling movie music plays behind. Him. Three angels, three angels up above the street, each one playing a horn, dressed in green robes with wings that stick out. They've been there since Christmas morn. The wildest cat from Montana passes by in a flash, then a lady in a bright orange dress, one U-Haul trailer, a truck with no wheels, the 10th Avenue bus going west. The dogs and pigeons fly up and they flutter around. A man with a badge skips by. Three fellas crawling on their way back to work. Nobody stops to ask why. The bakery truck stops outside of that fence where the angels stand high on their poles. The driver peeks out trying to find one face in this concrete world full of souls. The angels play on their horns all day. The whole earth in progression seems to pass by. But does anyone hear the music they play? Does anyone even try? I'm hanging on every word. I know, and there are none. I can't wait. <laughs> and I felt like I felt the parabola, the angelic parabola. Yeah, the algorithm so, of nothingness. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.